Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. our Father, our King. Lord, we thank you again that we are able to gather together and to study your words of life and that we um, have perfect assurance that uh, the words that have been given here are for our benefit, they're for our instruction, our reproof, our correction, um, our training in righteousness. Father, we thank you for, uh, for all that you continue to do in our community. You're growing us up at just the right speed. Forgive our impatience and forgive our uh, our stumblings at time as we uh, try to press into your holiness. We know, Father, that in Messiah that all things are working together for our good and that ultimately you are shaping us into the pattern of your dear Son. And that's what our desire is, that we be like your Son in all ways. Uh, help us to um, retain the things that we learn, challenge us, continue to grow us up, um, and help us to be a better witness for you. In Yeshua's authority, we name all of these things. Amen. Okay, it is the, what is today? I'm going to timestamp this one. It's the 27th of November, 2006. And this is a study on exegeting Galatians. I'm your I was going to say I'm your host. Uh, I, I've been on the radio too long. Uh, I'm Ariel. Ariel Ben Lyman. Um, we are in... Who wasn't here last week? Who wasn't here last week? Everyone was great. We are going, using the same handout last week because we didn't finish. Um, I have another handout for you that I'll give to you at the end of class, just before it's over. Do you need one? You missed last week? Okay. Were you both? Did you both miss last week? And you know what? I owe you a, a, a disc then. That's right. I didn't bring it. I didn't notice you were gone. I did notice you were gone. Did everybody else notice that David and Zippy was gone? <laughs> we didn't miss him, did we? No, yes, we missed him. Okay. Yes, we did. And Michael? Yeah, forgiven. Okay. All right. Get Michael on there. All right. Then let me hand out from last week. We are in Chapter 2. We're just finishing up on the... Um, Oops, we don't want that. We're finishing up on this uh, little um, scuffle between Peter and Paul. And we have been... For the most part, we know... We, I mean, we know the general concept as to what's happening. Chapter 2, there we go. This is the one that at the very top starts out chapter 2. There ye are. <laughs> Okay, and I'll have another handout for tonight, uh, but let's finish chapter 2 first. 
because I stopped right in the middle of the page. On page, look at the bottoms and you'll see it. If I can find mine here, under the law, Galatians 8, Galatians chapter 3, chapter 2. I stopped on page 27 just before verse 15. That's where I stopped. Everyone following? Great, so we'll finish that. And what I want to read for you tonight is um, J. Vernon McGee's uh, commentary on this particular exchange, too. Just so we can soundboard, bounce off of another, another viewpoint. Is that right? Okay. And then if you haven't noticed, this whole first semester or session or triad, I guess you'd call it, is focusing more on the background and identity of Galatians. And in the second one, we'll hit a lot more on, say, the law itself uh, and some other side issues that Paul pulls into his main argument. But for the most part, if we can get to the point, and I think most of us have, if, I can, if your homework's any um, indication, if we can get to the point where we are just absolutely confident that um, the whole message of the influencers was that the uh, the identity was the main issue for them, then we can better understand much more of Paul's writings. We won't read places where Paul mentions something like works. For instance, I'm of the impression that when Paul says in Ephesians, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, quoting from KJV, not of works, lest any man should boast, given the context of who his audience would be, works, do you suppose that works there is probably shorthand for works of law also? Not of works, lest any man should boast. I've heard it traditionally taught that the works there is that it's self-effort, right? Self-effort. But what kind of self-effort are we talking about if we're talking about first century Judaism? What self-effort? Keep in mind that the locus is first Jewish. We have, we have, the, we have the relationship between the people of God and, and the God himself defined by the Jewish people first, not defined by, like today, if you wanted to ask, if, if your average, say, um, unsaved person wanted to ask the question of a religious guru, uh, what should my relationship to God be? How does that look like? You could have a choice today. You could talk to, I mean, it, it, the, the, you know, it's like the uh, sky's the limit. You could talk to, what, Christians, you could talk to Jews, you could talk to Buddhists. But in first century setting, if that were your question, what should my relationship to God be like, who would you be asking? I suppose you could ask the Caesar, but you guys know where I'm going with this. <laughs> there you go, John. We're on the second page, page or on the back page, page 27. Anyone else not get a handout that just came in? Okay. Um, wouldn't it make sense to ask the Jewish people what the relationship to God would be like? Now, we're not talking about the Caesars and the imperial cult. Um, that is a pantheon of gods. So if you ask them, what should my relationship to God be white, like your centurion might a- answer your question, which God? Yeah. I said my relationship to God. Yeah. You, you're going to ask a Jewish person. And in that sense, what are the works that Judaism is professing? What do I, what do I mean when I say works? Torah obedience? However, and... and For the sake of the discussion, we'll say yes for a split second. Yes, it's Torah obedience. But how is Torah obedience seen in the Judaisms of Paul's day? Are we to imagine that the church is right and that it's simply a simplistic ladder to heaven that if I do X, Y, Z, then 
I'm in? Is that how the Judaism saw the Torah? Not really. Works were covenantal responsibilities done inside of the... Um, cov- I should say works became the... Um, the expected lifestyle once you were already a covenant member. The question is, how does one become a covenant member? That would have been the first... In the first century Judaism, how would they have answered that question? How does one become a covenant member? Converting if you're not already born Jewish, right? So just be born of Jewish parents or convert to that which you were not given at birth. So when Paul says, for by grace are you saved through faith, keep in mind who his audience is. His audience is both unsaved Jews and unsaved non-Jews. Um, unsaved Romans or pagans. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works. It's the same Greek word, ergon. So what do you think the works are that he's talking about? They're not of works, lest any man should boast. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, question. Right. And yeah, question. That's good. That's actually a good topic. Um, question: Does does bapt is baptism considered a work by most by most Christian standards? Is that a work that gets you in by most Christian? No. What is baptism then viewed as? A sacrament. Yeah, and the sacraments aren't works. I, I sound like I'm being kind of funny, but you know what I mean. I mean, it, it's, it's part of salvation, but it isn't. It's, it, the question isn't, does baptism... That's the wrong question. You ever heard that question? Does baptism save you or baptism does In my opinion, that's the wrong question to ask. The right question would be, if you're genuinely saved, why wouldn't you want to be baptized? That's the right question to ask. So the wrong question is, does baptism save or doesn't save? Um, it's an outward reflection of an inward reality. Why wouldn't you want to be baptized if... Or, you know, if if you could be, why would you be averted? Uh, why would you be averse to getting baptized if you were genuinely saved? And so we don't view back baptism as a work in the scope of it's not something that's helping. It's not adding to my salvation. Therefore, we don't consider it a work. That would be the same way that the Judaisms of Paul's day viewed, say, um, not necessarily circ. Well, yeah, circumcision it wouldn't have been considered a work because it's just the first step in becoming a covenant member. So they're just helping God out in that sense. They wouldn't consider it something that you earn. But it is viewed as self-effort in the sense that it is the identity that you are putting forward before God. You are stepping up to God's throne room and saying, let me in because I'm this. Let me in because I'm that. Whereas in the genuine salvation message, the only way you get in is by God's mercy and grace. And yet keep in mind that the first century Judaism looked at their Jewish identity as an act of God's grace. Which one of us can control our ethnicity as children? You can't. That's, that's out of your control. Therefore, it's God's grace that you were born a Jew. That's, that's, that, that's how they viewed it. They didn't see it as self-effort or self-striving in, in the sense that the church has described legalism. And that's the point we've been trying to make. If, you, if you've missed that, then you're not really catching what we've been teaching here for the last 12 or 13 weeks. Um, that's what I'm trying to get at. So... Um, the the whole identity package is the main issue at stake. That's why the that's why the Gentiles become the main point of contention in the entire apostolic scriptures is because they are Gentiles. That's it. That's just the very the very um, reality of what they are causes us 
causes a problem. And it's even possible that even though Paul and Peter were starting to work this thing out, the rest of the communities, keep in mind they didn't have G- uh, uh, Google and email and, and internet, so the news didn't travel as fast. It was really a truth that kind of spread from community to community as they went and explained these to them. So it's entirely possible that, and I was talking to Ryan about this, that when Paul was told by Yeshua, to keep in mind Paul's a Pharisee, when Paul was told by Yeshua that he was going to send that Yeshua was going to send Paul to the Gentiles. It's entirely possible that Paul heard, as a Pharisee, "Oh, we're going to step up the evangelist, the the the, the, the conversion program." There's that's not unthinkable. I mean, the church doesn't really articulate it that way when they say Paul was told by Jesus that he was going to go to the Gentiles. We always think, "Oh gosh, we're just going to go to the Gentiles and save them." But Paul may have been hearing. Oh, we're going to step up the uh, conversion program. You know, because Jesus, I don't know if he was speaking in hyperbole or not, but he said of the Pharisees, they crossed land and sea to make one proselyte. So they were, they were happy to swell their numbers. The, the Sadducees weren't really making proselytes because their, their position was one of royalty and it was a priestly position anyway. So you don't really proselytize within a priestly caste. You kind of get your numbers from the people that come behind you anyway. But the Pharisees were different. They were common people. They, were, they weren't blue blood. They were just... Average men. They were the politicians, you might say. And the people liked them. And so they're very popular. They're out uh, pushing their views. So maybe they were thinking, gosh, okay, we're going to... Because, I mean, who knows? Um, does that kind of make sense? That, uh, sometimes we don't think along those lines when we're reading the, the, the stories. All right, let's turn to the commentary. Turn to page 27, where we just finished that big section there. We're about to start on verse 15. We're right in the middle of Peter and Paul going at it. They're duking it out. And it's entirely, I haven't yet figured out myself how Peter could have backed down to the position that he's at. Whether or not Galatians takes place before Acts 15 or after, there's problems with either view. Do you know what I mean when I say Acts 15? That's the Jerusalem Council where they come up. In the Jerusalem Council, Peter is one of the spokesmen for the position of the true gospel. And in Galatians, it still takes place after Acts chapter 10. So either way, how is it that Peter just backed down to this position where he's giving in and not understanding the... And and maybe the answer is found in the fact that um, he hasn't reasoned it out the way that Paul has, that we're not turning the Gentiles into Jews. The gospel is going to them, but it's going to them as Gentiles, and they're remaining as Gentiles. So Peter did, maybe thought, thought he wasn't doing much wrong by going back and forth. Who knows? Uh, Let's pick up the discussion of verse 15. We who were Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law no one will be justified. Now here's where a translation, in my opinion, trips the reader up. Because the Greek phrase... um, uh, ergon namos works of the works of law literally i'll even i'll even accept works of the law because of the peculiarity of the greek uh, article ho works of law it, it does say ergon namos not ergon ho namos but works of law the translator here which i'm using uh what did i say niv does anyone remember off the top of my head niv niv has they translate works of law as observing the law if that's not biased, I don't know what is. Works of law does not mean observing the law. That is, in fact, the secret hidden to the church today. They equate works of law with observing the law. Right. I mean, plain and simple, just straight across the board. Therefore, 
because Paul is definitely saying that we're not justified, and justified here has first implications in imputed righteousness, but secondly, uh, ramifications of behavioral righteousness. They know that. The church is not unfamiliar with that. Um, But it says man is not justified by observing the law. What they feel Paul is saying to Peter is that, Peter, why do I have to explain to you over and over again that no one, by keeping the law, no one's going to be saved? There's a, there's a, there are fundamental problems with that assumption. Number one is, chiefly, is the assumption that that's the way the first century Judaism's wielded the Torah. That's not true. Number two, even if that is the way that they wielded it, it's not possible to keep the entire Torah from a singular point of view. So it's a lesson in logic, and or in my opinion, it's a lesson in stupidity. No one would, no one would bring themselves to the point where they would simplistically think that if I just walked out the Torah, that God's going to accept me. It's, it, you, would, you would get to the part where, as a man, where the commandments are given to women, and you'd realize at this point in time, I've been tripped up. I cannot keep the laws of Nida as a man. The laws relating to the menstruant woman. You'd realize at that point in time that this is an impossible thing. No one can do it. And yet, in reality, some people in the church say, aha, that's exactly why God put it that way. So that you get to the point and frustrated, beat your head up against the wall and say, okay, I give up. Give me the real way and God gives you Messiah. Or something like that. So that's not what's happening, though. The first century Judaism didn't wield it that way. Um, so it's unfortunate that Aragon Namos gets translated observing the law in this version. Uh, if they had just left the word works in there, it might have been a little closer to what the translation should be. By the way, how did I tra- How does David Stern translate it? What does he say? You guys have tr- Stern's translation now because I gave it to you. Legalistic observance of Torah commands. Yeah. And yet, even though that's closer to a closer to explaining it, because at least David Stern is making the distinction between good Torah, bad Torah, right? Good Torah's non-legalistic observance of Torah commands, and bad Torah would be legalistic observance, right? At least he's at least he's trying to peek into the matter and figure out what's going on. Um, he still misses it, unfortunately. So what we're really talking about is a halakha that teaches that um, covenant membership is gained by one's uh, ethnic status. And that's what Paul's trying to say when he says, uh, when he uses the word Aragon, their works. Let's look at my comments. We who were Jews by birth are not Gentile sinners. This is an odd statement taken at face value. What does, Paul's, what does Paul have to gain by telling Peter, we're Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners? This is Jew to Jew. What does it stand to further Paul's argument by insulting the Gentiles, right in the middle of his explanation of how Gentiles and Jews are both justified before God. It doesn't stand to further Paul's argument. Most authors who are careful now with textual criticism, Mark Nanos uh, and people like that, are, are suggest, and I, I go along with them, that what Paul's really doing is he's repeating the mantra of the Judaizers for a split second. And he says it in a kind of a a, 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 um, a tongue-in-cheek way. I'll, I'll, I'll act it out here in a second, but first, did you have a question or comment there? Or were you just stretching? <laughs> oh. oh. Okay, well then, can you hold it then? Is that all right? All right. We who, are, we, we who are Jews by birth, let's look at the whole context. Turn the page back, turn your page over, and look at verse 14. Let's read it without the, without the verse break. Let me just read it as one statement. And I'll read it, I'll try to say dramatize as if I'm Paul. 
when I saw uh, Paul's actually narrating, but then Paul also talks. So Paul writes what he does, but then Paul recounts what he says. So we get Paul's action and we get Paul's writing. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all. Then Paul, of course, retells. So let me see if I can put on my Paul voice. You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So I I just read it as one sentence to show that it is, in fact, Paul still talking. But it sounds rather odd coming out of Paul's mouth to say, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. This tells us alone that the word Gentile, ethnos, does not simply mean pagan. Pagan sinners? Why would you have to modify the word sinners there with the word pagan? If the word ethnos meant sinner by itself. If it was completely pejorative. I mean... He, and even still, he's really insulting the Gentiles if that's the case. If, he's, if by calling them Gentiles he's insulting them, what does he stand further to gain by calling them now sinners? Which itself is a technical term. So, let's read on. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Again, that phrase Gentile sinners um, is... Uh, um, no, he didn't make up the word there. It was just the previous word. The key to understanding this cryptic phrase is in knowing that it is not coming from the mouth of Paul or Joel. In my opinion. And not, I'm not the only one who thinks this. Now, let me explain it, because you're probably thinking, well, of course Paul says it. But let's, let, we have to say how Paul says it. Rather, he is simply restating the popular views of the influencers he is arguing against. To call a Gentile sinner was, from a Jewish point of view, derogatory. Something Paul would not have endorsed. Remember, Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's doing this in public, surely, possibly within, say, earshot of other Gentiles. What, what good does it to call them Gentile sinners. It's, it's probably better to say that at that point in time, he's repeating back to Peter the mantra of the influencers to kind of shock Peter back into reality. And he says it kind of tongue-in-cheek. I'll act it out after I read my comment. However, the established Judaic view of Gentiles allowed for them to be labeled by authentic covenant members as such. For Paul to insert this quote into his argument, the syntax of the Greek phrasing is crucial. The way the Greek is lined up, Helps us to understand that it's possibly not Paul talking. Only makes sense if we understand the rhetoric by which Paul is desperately trying to shake Peter loose from his current deficient halakhic actions. He's really trying to get Peter to wake up. Wake up! Peter has indeed confessed faith in Yeshua. So that to hold to the view that Gentiles are unclean, and we may do our little excursus on Acts chapter 10 with akathartos and koinos. If you haven't done that in this room, it's really helpful. Unclean, the word unclean or uncommon are, uh, are two different Greek words, and we have to understand those two words or we'll miss uh, the way they were used in the first century. Um, so, to hold that, so to hold to the view that Gentiles are unclean would be frustrating to the genuine gospel that Shaul has been commissioned to take up, I'm sorry, to take to the Gentiles. Continuing with the sharp rebuke, Shaul categorically embraces the notion that true biblical Judaism holds to the correct view that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I just used the same phrase in the NIV there. You can see it's in italics, um, rather than cleaning up by saying works of law. Contrary to the popular belief that one must either be born Jewish or convert to becoming a Jew, 
Paul's gospel extended lasting covenant membership to all who would freely embrace the message of the cross event. And that is the genuine gospel. That's the ingredient of the gospel that Paul emphasizes throughout his missionary journeys. It's the, you know, the gospel is that Jesus saves, but the ingredient of the gospel that Paul emphasizes is that Jesus saves the Gentile. It's one thing to say that Jesus saves and you have an entirely Jewish audience. The Messiah can save you. That's great if you're speaking to Jews. But if you have Gentiles in the mix, now you have to add the element that the Messiah can save you as Gentiles. Now, it's possible that Gentiles may not have had that developed covenantal view that Jews did. But if they interacted with Jews at some point in time, they would experience it. Wouldn't you agree? They would run into it. They'd find out. And that's possibly what happened to the the Galatians. They accepted the good news and then drew themselves into the Jewish community only to find the other Jews in the community telling them, oh, no, you guys haven't made it yet. You're not Jewish yet. You guys are in, but you're not all the way in. And 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 of course, being innocent believers, they would say, we're not? We're not in? Okay, well, what else do we have to do? Well, here's what you got to do. I'm glad you asked. Question. Uh, when Paul commanded that the Gentiles do just a certain amount of commandments, wouldn't it be divisive? I mean, wasn't he kind of dividing the body, saying, okay, Gentiles, if you're Gentiles, you only have to keep such and such commandments. If you're Jews, then you have to keep these commandments. And then how come some Gentiles were circumcised and some You're talking about the Acts 15 event and then the four stipulations? The four? That's a very good question. Let me finish reading this and I'm going to talk about that. It, she's bringing up a good point. If we don't have, I'm not saying you don't, if we don't have an accurate grasp of what happened in Acts 15, we'll fail to understand Paul and, converse, and vice versa. If we don't fully understand Paul, we'll misunderstand Acts 15. They work hand in hand. So we're going to talk about Acts 15 in a second. Let me finish this though. We may or may not get to Ver, uh, McGee tonight. Um, his is just humorous anyway in my opinion um, let's see contrary to the popular belief that one must either be born Jewish or convert to become a good Jew Paul's gospel extended lasting covenant membership to all who would freely embrace the cross event the word translated here as justified clearly invokes a positional righteousness as determined by Hashem that's what I mean when I say um, a man is declared righteous Obviously, we're talking about imputed righteousness. Even though the word imputed righteousness and behavior righteousness doesn't show up as such, the, the uh, concepts are built into the Torah. Somebody once asked me in a Bible study, why do you keep using the phrase forensic righteousness, behavior righteousness? The Torah doesn't use the, the, I'm sorry, the Bible doesn't use the term forensic and behavior. Why do you have to put those, insert those? And I said, I'm glad you asked. And then I had them after the study, not in the study, because I didn't, I didn't have time to, to go after. You were in that study, by the way. It was over the Brusos. Um, afterwards, at a different t- time at their house, you weren't at their house this time, I had them look up um, that Second Timothy 2.15 passage, for all scriptures God breathed, profitable for reproof, for doctrine, blah, blah, blah. You all know the verse, right? It says, and training in righteousness, right? It lists like these, you know, um, for, for, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Well, help me out here. If righteousness is imputed, why do I have to be trained in it? Yeah, Paul's trying to, to trying to get the idea across that there's an aspect of righteousness that is imputed, but there's another aspect of it that you have to grow into. And if it's fully imputed at the time that you're saved, then why would Paul have to say that it's profitable for training in righteousness? So the idea is that I was trying to get them to see that this is a behavioral righteousness that Paul's talking about. All right, everyone following along with me so far? Great. Given the current contextual argument, the phrase by observing the law must mean by conformity to a man-made ritual for the Gentile 
or by being born Jewish for the native born. Paul, remember, Paul's gospel is a double-edged sword. The true gospel is now slapping Jews in the face with this idea that you thought you were in, but you're not, and slapping Gentiles in the face with you don't have to do something you thought you maybe taught that you had to do. It's catching both sides, right? But but it, but for each recipient, it's slightly different. So, but he he doesn't articulate all that. He just comes right out and says works of law for for both groups catch it. Uh, let's see. We could translate the whole phrase thusly. A man is not justified by his ethnic-driven identity, whether natural or achieved, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is more accurate, I believe, to what Paul's trying to teach. Although it is theologically true that we are not, if I were to put a man is not justified by keeping the Torah. That is theologically true. But unfortunately, that's not the argument. Because it doesn't conform with first century um, evidence that we've unearthed. It doesn't, it doesn't follow anywhere in the Torah, as well as the Apostolic's writings, that they seem to be uh, going that direction. What follows, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing law, because by observing law no one will be justified, may amount to so much tautological repetition. Now, do you know what a tautology is? Tautology is when you say the same thing, but possibly in a different way, or slightly. It's, 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 how many of you in Mark's class, Hermeneutics class? It's a form of poetic parallelism. I'm using a, a, a term that Mark's used already. Mark has not used the term tautology. That's another technical term. Where you say, you know, the Lord is good, the Lord is great. That's poetic parallelism. But technically, that's called tautology. Where you say, say it one way and then say it again. Because if you look at it, either that or it's, it's what we call um, circular. <laughs> you just say it because, it, and why is it true? Because you said it. And why is it, why'd you say it? Because it's true. I mean, both are working. I mean, look at the way it says. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing law because by observing law no one will be justified. I mean, he's saying the same thing. Paul, why'd you have to say it twice? In fact, the phrase ergon nama shows up three times in that little passage alone. So now let me back up and put the mouth of what I think Paul's saying. He's saying to Peter, I have to look at verse 14. He more or less says like him, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? I'm, I'm like grabbing hold of Peter's coattails. Why, you know, why do you do this? And then perhaps maybe he paused and, and he looks around him and he looks at all the influences around him. I'm Paul. And, and he, and he kind of shakes his head and goes, we're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Don't you know, blah, blah. He, he, he kind of says it off the side, off the side of his mouth. Because that doesn't seem to come from the mouth of Paul. We're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Or he says it to Peter. We're Jews by birth and Gentile sinners. Yeah, right, Peter. Hello. Where did that get anybody? That's I'm filling in. Does that seem to make a little more sense to the... Um, to, and, I, and I know some people are going, gosh, Ariel, you're taking a lot of liberty with the text there. Um, the Greek is very terse. And in fact, at some point, the Greek is so terse, so quick, rapid fire that Paul doesn't even finish his sentence. So whoever's dictating it, or if Paul's writing, he's just like, bah, 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 and he's like, Gah! you know, maybe he just went and got a drink or cooled off and came back and started writing again. Because the Greek just leaves off. It, it's like, by blah, 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 blah. And then there's nothing. And we don't know. We know we, I mean, we know he's upset. He uses some of the strongest language ever. You know, he tells them, you know, gosh, if a little is good, maybe a lot is better. You know, I wish you'd just cut the whole thing off. And and you guys have to know what I'm talking about when I say that. So, um, I mean, why would he say that? He is just, he's heated. You want to get Paul upset? 
do that you know tell them that Jews and Gentile tell them that only Gentiles I, tell them that Gentiles are cockroaches tell them that that uh, you know speak down on Gentiles that'll really heat Paul up he's just he's heated about that so because why because that that used to be his party line he used to toe that thing really good if I'm still preaching circumcision why am I being persecuted yeah that's what he means by preaching circumcision so and we'll see that later on in in the book so let us pause and look at Acts 15 because your question was very, very good. If I understood your question, what would it serve the community to give the Gentiles only four and no more, but expect the Jews to keep the rest? Somewhere along that line? Did I get that? Okay. That's a very good question. Do you guys understand the question? Yeah. It's a legitimate question. The question of sorts is, in the Jerusalem Council, their conclusion to the situation the problem facing their um, community is what do we do with the Gentiles one of their conclusions is let's give them four no more and it is formulated in such a way that it is in some ways it's exclusive and in another way it's open ended but the fact that it's put into a letter gives us that exclusive feeling um, why would they give the Gentiles four but yet expect the Jews to keep all the rest doesn't that sound kind of un- imbalanced Especially this community. Turn everybody turn to Acts fifteen. Before I do that, while you guys are turning there, since we finished with page thirty, right? Nope. We finished with page twenty nine. We finished with page twenty eight. You sure? Is it twenty eight? All right. Twenty eight, you're right. Let me give you twenty nine and thirty. It's a one pager. To add to your continuing list. Okay, and I'll do this while everybody's turning. Ouch. Turning to. So let's see. I'll just grab one of those and pass it down. And grab one of those and pass it down. It's just one page, front and back. It's the next few verses. And there should surely be extras. All right, let's look at Acts 15. We've already asked ourselves way early into the study, which takes place, Acts 15 or Galatians? Oh, sorry, should not have a staple in it. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, did you get one of those, though? Good. Okay, then the bigger stack came this way. You'll have to wait until it comes back around. I have another one, by the way. You two don't have to share. It's my it's my doctored up version of David Stern's version. That's what it is. It's a doctored up David Stern's. Did you give that away about a few weeks ago? A few weeks ago, yeah. Oh, and John, you didn't you need one too, right, John? I don't think you got one of these. I put holes in everything for a reason. Oh, you got one. Oh, you don't need one? You got one? Okay. It's got typos in it. I apologize. I don't know why my spell checker didn't catch the typos. Maybe because some of the words are real words. Okay. Anybody else need anything at the moment? All right, we'll talk about it after class if you do. Okay, turn to Acts 15. We're not going to develop the entire context of this. We'll just hit the highlights as they relate to Galatians. Uh, We talked about whether or not Acts 15 takes place uh, chronologically before or after Galatians. The impact, why do we care? Because the the Acts 15 is an official council. And the Jerusalem council is the messianic Sanhedrin, so to say. You had the 
secular Sanhedrin or the local Sanhedrin, which was obviously larger, which governed more or less the state of Israel as a people. But then within that functioning was this already smaller Messianic Sanhedrin. That means that the larger group developed halakha for all the synagogues and the outlying areas. But this larger, smaller Jerusalem council of sorts could only speak to the believing communities, right? Could the Jerusalem council headed up by James, Peter, and John, all those guys, could they make a halakhic ruling that the secular synagogue would expect to hold to? So we understand this four stipulations to be for their community. This is not for the secular communities. This is how I've heard some people say, this four was so that the Gentiles could get into the synagogue. That's not even credible to say that. Why? Because how could this little body of messianic community make a halakha for the larger groups to follow? It doesn't work. It's for the Gentiles in their community, not the group at large. Does that make sense so far? The, the equivalent is today. Let's see if Mark and let's see if the quorum of three, Peter, Mark, and now I guess well, I guess it's Peter, Mike, and Pastor Ernie. Let's see if they three can make a halakha that the synagogue downtown will follow. Yeah, they're they're, they're going to be like, well, first of all, we don't even recognize your authority. You're who, and your master is who, your rabbi is whom. Forget it. You guys are out to lunch. So it, it's never going to happen. So we got to understand that the four make a, a halakha, and I do see your hand, the four make a, 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 a requirement for their communities to exist within the larger community because they're not separate groups. I like to imagine it like this. This might be the trip that a Gentile might take. He, he, he works and lives in, in, in Rome. That's where he works and lives and does his business transactions. But as he's attracted to God, he goes to the synagogue where there's general introduction to the Jewish way of life. But as he's there, he may run into some believers. But they're still probably in minorities. Unless, unless at one point in time the synagogue gets made up of mostly believers, then it tips and it becomes a messianic synagogue. But for the most part, it's a secular. Do you know what I mean when I say secular synagogue? They're not professing faith in Yeshua. They're just towing the standard Jewish party line like we have today. So he's in that environment and he bumps, he rubs, he meets Ryan over there. Ryan's a believer. Now at this point in time, there's still good relations between the Messianic Jews and the non-Messianic Jews. The Messianic Jews have not been kicked out of the synagogue yet. They're still in the synagogue. So you can read the book of Acts and that's where Peter and Paul are, always are. So he hears about Yeshua through another synagogue uh, attendee, which is Ryan. And after he hears about that, that's when he makes his way over if he if professes faith in Yeshua, over to the Messianic community. And so at that point in time, now the two of them keep visiting the local synagogue. And they do keep repeating what you just did. They keep trying to win people to the Lord. They are witnessing to other Jewish people because that's what the Jewish people are meeting is in the synagogues. Does that seem like more of a likely scenario? It's within that setting that the Jerusalem Council has to sit down and go, what kind of ruling can we make for the communities that are developing in our own area, communities of believers? Not, how do we make a ruling for the Gentiles to get into the synagogues here? Hello? They're already in the synagogues. So, it has to be a ruling that, that addresses a situation, maybe like own eggs or something like that. All right, you had a question or a comment? Well, we can take um, we can take Acts somewhat at face value that it reads chronologically, especially when um, Luke is writing. He'll say, "And after these things, blah blah blah." 
The only thing that happens is, that trips us up, is we have Acts being written, and then we have Galatians, that's a letter that gets tagged in. But the only way to make it actually fit chronologically is if we maybe put it inside of the middle of Acts. Because Paul's not in the same... Luke's only writing about what's happening in these events. He doesn't travel along with Paul everywhere. So maybe if we took Acts or Galatians out and inserted it in the right place where it fits in Acts. Because where Acts starts and where Acts ends, Galatians is in the middle of there. That's what kind of throws us off. Is We don't have any Bibles that read that way that I'm aware of. Otherwise, we'd, we'd have to get rid of one of the books. Or we'd have to relabel it Acts slash Galatians, right? Well, the chapters would get labeled Acts slash Galatians. That would be a weird kind of arrangement. Anyone else know of any arrangements that are done that way? Maybe that maybe a movie would capture that for us. <laughs> All right, so that's kind of what's throwing us off. Um, I only have five minutes here. Gosh, where did the time go? Acts 15, back to the four. Um, what, what are they trying to tell their people? These four and no more. We've already determined that the four have... Um, have something to do with community norms, especially among um, Jews and Gentiles of their day. That is to say, the four that they choose seem to be a distilled version of a let's make a break from paganism for the Gentiles. Okay, The reason we're pick, singling out the Gentiles is because the Jewish people, for the most part, were already within the confines of a Torah-based lifestyle. Therefore, paganism should not be the norm for a Jew. I'm not saying that Jews weren't involved in paganism. They most certainly were. But for the most part, the, the community is trying to say, look, the Gentiles have no background in Torah. They don't even know how to uh, approach the food issues. So if we're going to strengthen our very own communities between Jews and Gentiles, we've got to make a way so that they can exist together without tearing each other's heads off. And so rather than just tell the Jews, or no, rather than just tell all of them, look, you guys just need to get along. Um, why, and, and also, conversely, why not just tell them, hey, you know what, you Gentiles, you need to just start keeping Torah. Where do you start? What they do is they give them first what we might call the um, taboo laws or, or just the general fellowship laws. Similar to, like, what if we had a new family? What if we had new families joining this, this Kehila on a regular basis and these families were coming from another culture that, we, that we're not... A non-American culture. And with this, let's say, I don't, I don't want to pick on any other cultures, but let's just say it's a non-American culture. And in this non-American culture, let's say it's, a, it's, you know, it's an Eastern culture or an Asian culture. So in this culture, their dress standards are very, very loose. So that they don't wear very much at all. You've seen the National Geographic sometimes. And sometimes you know, the cameras are rolling and they go to the village and the, the villagers are naked. By our standards, they're naked. And we're thinking, gosh, well, that's just the way they dress. So let's say we had a whole group of these people constantly coming into our community. Would not we as a Kehilat lay down some general rules of dress for these new families coming in to safeguard the entire community at large? That's all we're talking about here is the four. It could have varied between five or three or whatever. They just pilled up. but They just they distilled it to four. Is that these all, all these four or these four all have a common element, and that is full-blown pagan identification or pagan participation, especially within the imperial cult. We've got the, the council saying we've got to get the Gentiles to be able to fit into a Jewish setting and have the Jews, the existing Jews, accept them. So these are the four that you've got to leave at the door. Or these are the four things, you know, maybe I could turn it a different way. Let's say we had a whole, a whole family of people that were constantly coming in. We have to keep the influx coming. So that after a while, if more Gentiles are there than Jews, then the dynamic switches, right? Let's say we had 
families that were constantly joining our Kehilat, and they were pot smokers, current pot smokers, not ex-pot smokers. They came to Messiah, but now they're coming in, and they're coming in with lit up stogies. I mean, they're, they're coming in. To, it's like, um, it's like you know how we do the greeting thing? Shabbat Shalom at the door. It'd be like, Shabbat Shalom. What are you doing? Shabbat Shalom. Okay. At some point in time, yeah, on the one hand, we don't want to say, get out, because they're new believers to our community. We want to welcome them in. But we understand that they're coming from a worldview that has not been trained in the protocols of church setting. So we have to kind of train them. We might have, some of the first things we might tell them to do is, you know what, you've got to leave the pot at the outside, leave it in your car, leave it, you can't bring it in. Okay, that's kind of what's going on here. They, they, they pull four that are not actually right in the Torah. They're somewhat related to the Torah, but most of them are community things that they just pulled out and gave to these Gentiles so that the Gentiles could fit into the community. And then it's interesting, and lots of Messianics have pointed this out. In verse 19... Starting there, it says, therefore, in my opinion, and I'm going to close with this because I'm out of time. Therefore, in my opinion, my opinion is that we, and I'm not, I don't know who's speaking at the moment, but it's one of the believers. Therefore, it is my opinion that we should not put obstacles in the way of the goyim who are turning to God. Obstacles. We, I don't have the time to develop what those obstacles are. Instead, we should write them a letter telling them to, and then they give us the four, abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, from one who strangled, and from blood. And then look at verse 21. That's interesting. For from the earliest times, Moshe has had in every city those who proclaim him, with his words being read in the synagogue every Shabbat. The idea is possibly that we can get him these four in our communities so that our community itself doesn't fall apart. But, the, but, the, but there's the assumption that we are all going to be back in the synagogue and learn the rest of Torah. And as we learn more and more Torah, we'll clean, there'll be more and more cleaning up. But at least, let's at least give them the, some minimum, not to be saved and not to be sanctified per se, but at least just so that our community doesn't fall apart. And uh, that's why they, I, I think that fits the scenario best, is to, considering the first century situation where you had Jews and Gentiles all of a sudden just thrown in the mix together. So, does that kind of help to answer the question at all? It's <sighs> yes. Eventually, we'll have them all learn Torah. But it's, it's unrealistic to say, just like it is today, new family joins and they're like, gosh, we like your community, we want to join. Great. Here's what you need to do. No smoking, no drinking, no porn, no blah, blah, blah. I mean, all of a sudden, you dump the whole load on them. They're just like, Ugh. they're like, forget this church. Yeah, they'll leave. Same thing would be true there. Okay, you know, Sabbath, kosher, blah, 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 everything. There's like, whoa, that's too much overkill. Um, besides, it might send the wrong signal that that's what's most important. And, what, and from Paul's point of view, they're like, let's, let's develop the relationship on the inside. Because if we were to develop real relationships with one another, we'll want to develop as a community. You know, first show them that you care. Then, how does it say, what's that? I, there's a clever saying. If someone first knows that you care, then they'll care that you know, or uh, it turns around, some goofy. Yeah, anyway, you get the idea. They know you care, then yeah, it comes from the heart, so that seems to fit better. But this is not an exhaustive list for the church to look at this today and go, these are all the four that we had to do. Gosh, they missed a, re- a few of the biggies. Like, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Like, honor your parents, like not stealing or anything like that. If these are the f- only four and no more, we've got some huge theological problems. If these are the only four, so we know that, that that's not an exhaustive list either. So that seems to fit. Next week, what we'll do is I will read this for you real quick. But we'll start on page 29 next week with the top of the page, verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law. 
And next week I'll give a homework assignment too. So let's close before Mark pokes his head. <laughs> Abba, we bless your name. We thank you for um, an interesting study. Uh, we know that there's so much to learn, so much to be uh, discovered by your Torah. And so uh, we rely on the Spirit to open the words and the pages up to us uh, as he feels fit to reveal to us. Um, thank you, Father, for what you are teaching us. Uh, we know that you're a faithful God. And we know that you will bring to pass the promises that you have made to us both through your word and through your Son. And so we seek to be pleasing to you in all that we do. Bless you, Father. For your name is great, and Yeshua makes this possible. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 